Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Alex Kruger, freelance journalist in Kiev. It's Thursday, the 13th of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, we'll talk about Russia's strikes on Ukraine, including in central Kiev. And I report from Finland, where the government hopes the largest nuclear reactor in Europe will help it weather the winter energy crisis. All Kilo 3 power plant is the first uh, nuclear power plant in the world that already knew in in 2006 when the the construction started that where its waste would go to be finally disposed. And Ido visits the first facility in the world for the long-term storage of nuclear waste. We will also take a listener question on OPEC and the United States. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, your ears have not deceived you. Alex, our former colleague and current roving reporter, is joining us from Ukraine. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be back on World Review. Alex has written a beautiful dispatch from Kiev that we will put in the show notes to this piece. But in the meantime, we're going to to talk a bit about it. So let's let's get right into it. Central Kiev was attacked this week. And as Alex wrote for us in her dispatch, this was actually the first time that the center of the country's capital was struck since Putin began his war in late February. Alex, you write in the piece, in the days before the attack, there was jubilation here. Can you tell us a bit about the context that this all took place in? Events have been moving really quickly in Ukraine for the past week. And what we had was the strike on the Kerch Bridge on Saturday. This is the bridge that links illegally occupied Crimea, which Russia seized in 2014, with the Russian mainland. And on Saturday morning, there was a beautiful sunrise over the Black Sea and a big plume of black smoke going up into it where this bridge had been hit. And this is 
a humiliation for Russia, both for President Putin, because this is his personal project. It's also a military setback because this is one of the main supply lines for Russian troops in the south, and now they are restricted. And if you've seen pictures of the damage to the bridge, it is extensive. It will not be carrying much cargo for quite a while. They have a lot of repair work to do. So that had really set the mood, and Ukrainians felt they had scored a success. And then on Monday morning, I was in my hotel in Kiev. I had just arrived on Sunday. I'd been in Odessa for three weeks and the western city of Lviv for a week before that. On Monday morning, I was getting dressed and the hotel shook. There was a tremor. And I thought it must be a missile strike or something, some kind of attack on on central Kiev. But no one else in the hotel seemed particularly bothered. So I went out to have a look round, went round the corner, saw there was police tape, there were people in uniforms standing around, there was broken glass underfoot. And I realized that where I was staying was only about half a mile from one of the sites attacked in Kiev, because by that time, news was getting out of what had actually happened. This is not a gas explosion. This is not some kind of domestic incident. This was the war coming to Kiev. And the city had really got used to the war being in the east and the south and on the front lines. There's been lots of diplomatic activity in Kiev, but this is the first time for a couple of months anywhere in the capital has been struck. And it's the first time that it came so close to the center of the city. You also make the point in the piece that this really not that it not that it it scared people, but that it, it it had an impact in a way that even threat of nuclear strike did not. That you say is sort of dismissed as blackmail, whereas this is really, I mean, it it was quite literally a strike at the city and its residents. Yeah, it absolutely was. One of the sites that was hit was a children's playground. And I went over there and you know there were leaves underfoot, green leaves. They'd all been blown off the trees. All the windows in the buildings opposite had been blown out. Some of the playground equipment was damaged. And there were people standing around and everyone was silent because maybe they brought their children there. Maybe they played there themselves as children. And they were just stunned by this because there's no way that this could be described as a military target. One of the other sites in Kiev that was hit was is a pedestrian bridge over the River Dnieper. It's a glass bridge. That doesn't carry anyone except pedestrians, cyclists, families out for the day. The Kerch Bridge in Crimea was carrying military supplies. There's not really much of an equivalence between the two, but it really brought home, to, I think, to people in Kiev that this is still a threat to them. So when the air raid sirens sounded again on Monday night and then again on Tuesday. The shelters were full. For the first time in months, people were really seeking cover. What was the day after the strike like? There was a sense of shock. It was a sign of how far Putin might be willing to go. And in a way, it was a reminder that Russia, you know, Russia could have struck the presidential administration buildings. These from all the indications we have are that these were precision missiles. So these targets were chosen, um, and it was a reminder of, of, of Russia's reach and a reminder that, yes, there is this nuclear 
element in the background. And there are two strands to this. And one is the threat that Russia could use nuclear weapons. The other is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is not in the city of Zaporizhia. That's still under Ukrainian control. The power plant is in Russian-controlled territory. And the power has gone off again this week. So the power plant is being kept cool. The, the reactors are being cooled by diesel generators. They only have enough diesel for a few days. So it's it's a reminder of just how much is at stake. And no one knows exactly how far Putin might be willing to go. What's the message that um, Ukrainians have taken from, from these strikes? I mean, presumably the point of launching them was to cow the Ukrainians, to sort of make them think, okay, well, nowhere is is safe. You know, these cities that have been quiet for months in Lviv and Kiev and, and so on, kind of the, the reality of the war, as you said, being brought brutally at once back to them. Do you think that that's working? It has certainly brought the reality home to people in cities which have not been attacked for several months. But I think, if anything, it has made them more defiant. And the message has been very much, don't give in to Putin's nuclear blackmail. This is what the Ukrainians are telling their Western allies. Instead, they're saying, send us more air defense systems. This is what we need. And so the, the, there are meetings of the G7, there are meetings of def NATO defense ministers taking place this week. It has uh, increased the tempo, I think. And the, the air defense systems are arriving. A few arrived from Germany. There are more on their way from the US. But it's a, it's a slow process. And Ukraine is saying, we need these now. The trouble is, Ukraine is a massive country, and it's really, really difficult to protect that much. But the Ukrainians are saying, we need more help, and we need it now. And they are just pressing that message to anyone who will listen. Speaking of nuclear blackmail and energy blackmail, we are going to move to our next segment. So as we heard at the top there, and as you know, if you were listening to the podcast last week, Ido was in Finland last week, where, as we said, he visited the world's first facility for the long-term storage of nuclear waste. Before we get to that, Ido, as you said, Finland hopes the largest nuclear reactor in Europe will help it weather the winter. Could you say a bit, a bit more about that? What is the significance of this reactor? We know that Europe has been hesitant um, to turn to nuclear energy at certain points. Can you just give us sort of the lay of the the nuclear reactor land. Sure. So last week I went to Finland and I visited this nuclear power plant called Okiluta. My sincere apologies to the long-suffering Finnish people. Um, yeah, Finns, if we said that wrong, we're sorry, but there, there's too many yeah, vowels for us. We did our best. Of, anyway, sorry, back of, to you, Ida. Get rid of some of the vowels, guys. Um, you've just got too many. This is a pretty old nuclear site, so I think it's been running since the 70s with two reactors. But they're in the final phase of testing their third reactor, which is going to go online, currently scheduled for December, although it's over 10 years late. So who knows, really? It might be delayed again. It's a French design. It's called a, something called an EPR, which basically means it's a little bit more efficient than previous nuclear reactor designs. And yeah, so it will generate about 1,600 megawatts of electricity, which is a lot of electricity. It's 14% of Finland's energy used by itself, just this one reactor, which is enough for over a million people's electricity consumption. So it's a lot of energy. Obviously, uh, although it's over a decade late, it's coming really at quite a good time for Finland because um, Finland in common with, I think, most countries in Europe is now facing an energy crisis. Russia cut off electricity exports to Finland quite early on, a few months into the war. 
And obviously, Finland has uh, has stopped importing as many petroleum and gas uh, products from Russia as it did before. So it's got a certain amount of shortfall of energy and electricity to make up. And obviously, this reactor, which by itself will produce 14% of Finland's electricity, will make a big dent in that. You were also able to visit the first facility anywhere for the long-term storage of nuclear waste. And I believe we have a clip. All Kilo 3 uh, power plant is the first... A nuclear power plant in the world that already knew in, in 2006 when it, the, the construction started that where its waste would go to be finally disposed. And can you just describe the process, the, the, the process in short of what, what will happen to this, to this waste? First, the, when the waste has been five years in the reactor pressure vessel, it's taken out and it will stay in the pool near the, near the pressure vessel for a few years maybe. Then it's moved to the temporary storage where it's been cooled down in a pool for 35, 40 years. And then, then after that it's ready to be fi- final disposed. And it comes here. And um, how long will it be buried uh, here? Forever from rock to rock, uranium comes from the rock and then that's where you leave it. So tens of thousands of years? Or as long as it needs to be there. It, it, it's, it's a final disposal place. And every other country is going to have to have to adapt to a similar, come I to th- a similar solution. There are other solutions, but I think this, this is the, been considered the most safest and, and it doesn't be have to be the Finnish petrock. Like in France, they plan to put it directly on the clay. So as as you heard there, Oculoto 3 is one of the first nuclear power plants in the world to have been built with a kind of specific eye on where the nuclear waste will be stored. Now, this is obviously um, a pretty contentious uh, question across the world because spent nuclear fuel is still radioactive and it's going to stay radioactive for thousands of years, although because of the half-life, the radioactivity kind of drops over time. So over a period of, of, a, of a few hundred years, you end up with relatively low radiation, but nonetheless, you obviously need to store it somewhere. So the solution the, the Finns have come up with is they've dug a massive complex of tunnels which go 450 meters down, and basically they're going to put the nuclear fuel in these kind of huge capsules. I think they're 35 meters long, and um, just bury it underground in the kind of this very stable rock that they've got in this area in Western Finland. So I was there, and it's it's really kind of it's quite impressive. You you enter this basically this big tunnel, and you just keep driving, and you go down and down and down, and it's a it's a huge complex. It doesn't actually feel like you would think that it feels quite claustrophobic because you're 500 meters down and you know you're somewhere that is eventually going to be completely sealed shut but actually it 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 feels quite sort of light and airy like there's an incredible amount of engineering that's gone into this and so the idea is basically that because you need to store nuclear fuel for as good as ever they're going to basically plonk it in these this huge hole basically this massive tunnel complex and it should be stable enough not to move for thousands, uh, thousands and thousands of, of years. I mean, the people who are showing us around, we're talking in kind of civilizational terms, like it's going to be completely blocked up. And even maybe when humanity or, or our, our civilization is gone, they still it'll, it'll still be there. I guess it's kind of 
poetic that this nuclear waste will outlast us all. And actually, uh, it turns out that this is a problem that basically no one has solved yet, as far as I know. And based on what we were told, it kind of seems like this is more or less the answer that you have to arrive at eventually. But because nuclear power is actually a relatively recent uh, invention, so it only really got mainstream in the past sort of 50, 60 years, and it actually takes 40 years to cool nuclear fuel anyway, uh, to cool it like cold enough at, at which point it can be sort of handled. So apparently this, uh, this kind of solution is going to have to be reached um, across the world, which is something that one of the engineers at the plant told me. The same way as we have here already, we have stored the spent nuclear fuel uh, in, uh, in the water pools, in bassins. Um, and in many countries, uh, the spent nuclear fuel is stored in a pool, uh, covered uh, with water. Uh, and in some, some um, countries, there are also dry storages. So they're all like the field where, where the spent fuel is uh, like isolated in a cask. But it's but it's not a long-term solution. Uh, in in a way, it's a temporary solution. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's like it looks like a swimming pool. Okay. <laughs> Here in the Alkiluoto, it's partly covered in a way that it's it's uh, it's it's just a deep. It's twelve meter. It's the depth of the pool. And it's partly constructed uh, below the surface, and but but the building is above the surface, and you go in from the surface level, and and you almost are at the level where the, where the pools are. So so the pools are partly in in the excavated area. But Ido, not to be naive, but how is this the first time that somebody has thought of how to store? nuclear waste? Is it really, it, I mean, it just seems like if we've been talking about nuclear energy for a while, how has nobody done this before? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Part of the answer is that nuclear fuel, once it's been used to obviously heat the kind of steam that powers these turbines that then produce electricity, it obviously gets very, very hot and it contains a huge amount of energy and um, it takes a very long time to cool. So they told me it takes 40 years to cool. So already you have to hold it somewhere for 40 years to wait for it to cool before you worry about what you're going to do with it long term. I mean, isn't this part of why there's been so much fuss about reprocessing nuclear fuel the, and shipments of it? And there are all these nuclear trains through Germany at a certain point, And, you know, they were sending the stuff off to Russia and because they were yeah. just kind of they were kind of recycling it. They, did, they didn't know what to do with it. That's, that's one of the huge problems with nuclear energy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big political problem. It's like one of the things they said that I was told is um, that it's a, it's, a, it's a very big problem um, for politicians because basically no one wants a long-term nuclear storage, nuclear waste storage facility near them. And obviously, politicians in particular areas, which might get earmarked for these kinds of facilities, will usually make hay out of um, opposing such projects. That hasn't happened in Finland, apparently, because uh, Finland is quite a pro-nuclear country. And also, they've put a lot of effort into getting the local population on side. And also, the rock is known to be really, really stable. So it doesn't seem to be as big a political issue in Finland as it might be in, a, in other places. Right. So I have one last question, which is only sort of related, but it's for Alex. We have been speaking often on this podcast on the 
pressure that Russia is exerting on Europe vis-a-vis energy in a looming cold winter and so on and so forth. And I was just wondering if in your time in Ukraine, if Ukrainians have had a response to that. And if so, what is it? I think the response the Ukrainians have had to that point is the response they've had to a lot of the reservations from the Western allies about the war, which is that if there's a deal now, if Putin is not stopped now, the rest of Europe will be next, that that Putin will use any kind of ceasefire or negotiation to regroup, and it's not going to stop with Ukraine. So yes, this may be a difficult winter, uh, but there could be worse to come. And the other thing to remember is that Ukrainians themselves are facing a difficult winter because so much, not just not just these Zaporizhia plant, but a lot of electricity infrastructure has been targeted in the past week. Power stations have been knocked out. Cities have been without power. The city of Lviv was without power for several hours. People have been asked not to use energy-intensive appliances, that kind of thing. And Ukraine, like a lot of post-Soviet, post-communist countries, organizes heating on a communal basis. So there is what's called the heating season, when the central heating is turned on for whole neighborhoods or cities. And that, that date is coming up fast. Ukraine has very severe winters. So if people are left without heating, that's a real threat to them. And that is something that the Russians have underscored in the past week by knocking out so many power generating sources across the country. Well, we will obviously continue to cover the story of energy in Europe with respect to this war on this podcast and our coverage. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we are going to move to a related energy question in a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. All right. That was, I mean, it was. Um, so we have a question from a listener. Leslie wanted to know, why is the OPEC plus group reducing oil exports now in apparent support of Russian interests? So this is a reference to the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, which announced it would reduce production by 2 million barrels a day. It is believed that Saudi Arabia was behind this decision. Now, there's been some speculation as to why this was. Perhaps it was to punish the United States for supporting Ukraine. Perhaps it was meant to hurt Biden and the Democrats before the midterm elections. If gas if you know gas prices go up, that's not advantageous for the party in power. I've spoken to some Saudi experts who basically said they did it because they could. They did it because they could cut production. And if they cut production, market prices go up, which is in the short term beneficial for them. One thing that I think has been extremely interesting here in Washington, D.C., is that you have people who have not been that critical of the U.S.-Saudi relationship who sort of said, well, Biden needs to go to Saudi Arabia and we need to maintain this relationship, who were willing to overlook, I mean, grievous human rights abuses and the war in Yemen and the murder of a journalist who are now saying, okay, we need to rethink the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Now, I don't actually know if this will be what does it. I think after the aforementioned murder of Jamal Khashoggi, you had people say, okay, like surely, surely it's over now. Surely now the U.S. will rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia. And indeed, Biden came into office and, and didn't do that. It would be interesting if the thing that did it was oil, but perhaps it will be. I think it's difficult to make the case that the administration needed to maintain this relationship and needed to go and visit and meet the crown prince, you know, and it, because it's important to maintain this relationship for security reasons and for practical reasons, if Saudi Arabia then turns around and cuts oil production at the very moment that it's told, hey, please, please don't do this. Russia's waging war in Ukraine. And I would also just say, like, as we've said on this podcast before, this is part of the problem of oil politics. If you are dependent on oil, the countries that have it have leverage in their geopolitics in a way that perhaps makes it difficult to stand up to, oh, I don't know, autocratic 30-somethings who are de facto in charge of the kingdom. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, as a reminder, we now have a form, 
an online form where you can send your questions in. So you just go to www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us. That's www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us. Leslie, thank you for your question. And as a reminder, you can normally tweet at us. I also want to say once again, thank you, Alex, so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. You're again, thank you for your dispatch. And um, thank you for sharing your your reporting from Ukraine with us. Thank you very much for having me back on. It's really nice to reconnect with the team and New Statesman podcast listeners. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Emily on her forthcoming book, Bad Jews. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you have already subscribed, thank you so much. Please also rate us five stars, five stars only, and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.